The U.S. women's soccer team won the very first Women's World Cup competition in 1991. It's all over. The USA women's team are the world champions. Then won it again eight years later. Go! Again, 16 years after that. The United States of America are crown champions of the world. But in all that time, women on the U.S. team have received a fraction of the resources that their male counterparts have. So in their fight for equity, the team has turned to the courts for help and to the court of public opinion. Those are fans chanting equal pay. Today on Common Law, we're diving into the beautiful game and asking, when it comes to gender equity in sports, can the law help level the playing field? Welcome back to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Galyuba, the Dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. In this season of Common Law, we're exploring issues of law and equity. In our last episode, we talked with Boston University Law School Dean Angela and Wachi Willig about the cultural trauma that results from a lack of accountability when police and vigilantes kill Black people. With the repeated acquittals and the non-indictments, it has the impact of leaving so many people who are citizens in this country feeling like they aren't protected. If you missed that episode, we hope you'll go back and listen. Today, in a totally different arena, we're bringing in a team of two experts to talk about equity on the soccer field. Professor Camilo Sanchez and UVA law student Jolina Zabel recently collaborated on a study titled Gender Discrimination in Football, Building a Toolbox Toward Gender Equity in the Beautiful Game. And just by way of clarification, by football, they're talking about soccer. So welcome, Jolina and Camilo. We are delighted to be here with you. Great to be here. So Camilo, you're the director of our International Human Rights Clinic here at UVA Law School, as well as co-director of our Center for International and Comparative Law and our Human Rights Program. Maybe to some people, sports don't seem like they're necessarily in the core of human rights. So why would you say gender equity in sports is an appropriate topic for the Human Rights Clinic to be taking up? That's a great question. It's an opportunity to bring the human rights conversation into the daily life because you see sports all the time. Sports is really something that is part of our lives and it's been that way for thousands of years. And when you have these huge disparities that affect half of the world's population, that's something in which law and justice need to be involved. Jolina, I understand you were one of three law students who worked on this issue and that, in fact, you were an all-woman team. And uh, I was just wondering, how did you get interested? How did you come to the topic? Yeah, so I was part of a three-woman team of UVA law students working on this project. And I was interested right from when Camilo first introduced it to the clinic. I have a background in human rights work, but had never done any work in sport despite doing a lot of work on gender advocacy. And so I was really interested to see how this tool of human rights and human rights law, human rights advocacy could be used in this new arena and applied. And by the end of the research project, I've become a real believer that this is a huge opportunity to make a big difference in the world of sport. 
Great. So let's start with the most high-profile legal case associated with gender discrimination in soccer. That's the U.S. women's soccer team lawsuit that they filed against the U.S. Soccer Federation in 2019. So what were the players alleging? What's that case about? This is actually not the first case that the women's national team in the U.S. has been a part of, which I think is an important context to set. There's been previous cases um, by individual players like Hope Solo. Outspoken goalkeeper Hope Solo was on the team for 19 years. Time and time again, we asked that we wanted to be paid equally to the men. This is a clip from a 2016 interview on 60 Minutes. Every time we brought up the men, it pissed them off, it annoyed them, and they'd say, don't bring up the men, don't bring it up. Several years ago, there was another lawsuit after Canada hosted the Women's World Cup. And the allegations in that lawsuit and also in this one really kind of have two different key components. One is differences in the way the players are treated in terms of their travel accommodations, what fields they're playing on, things like that. Right. And in your paper, you talk about playing on artificial turf, which is less expensive than natural grass. And that may sound like a small thing, but apparently it makes a big difference, which I hear often in my family from both my husband and my daughter, who are soccer players, and they hate playing on turf. Anyway, in the 2015 Women's World Cup, the teams had to play on turf in all six of the tournament's venues. If we were talking about male teams, any amateur team in one of these countries they would have played in grass, big stadiums, and women, elite players, had to play in turf. Abby Wambach, one of the U.S. team's top players, described to NBC Sports what it was like to play on turf. Playing on turf affects everything, you know? It affects the way the ball rolls. It affects the way the ball bounces. Should I slide and toe poke this ball into the goal and deal with bloody knees, bloody uh, hip bones? It's, it's, it's kind of a nightmare. And the other category is pay contract-based discrimination where they're looking at what the men's players are receiving. And it's just so much more money that they're capable of getting through prizes, things like that. And the pay structure is pretty complicated, but the way it nets out is that women are paid much less despite being a much more successful team. Just to channel my daughter, who is not only a soccer player, but a huge fan of the women's national team, they've won how many World Cups? And the men have won how many World Cups? (laughs) The men have won zero. <laughs> the women's U.S. national team has won four World Cups. For the fourth time, the United States of America are crown champions of the world. And for the very first time, they've done it on European soil. The women's U.S. national team has by far been the most successful women's team in the entire world and is looked to as a leader. And so it's it's really interesting and kind of a shame that they're paid and compensated so much less than the men's national team. Can you just give us a sense of what kind of money are we talking about? Millions. We're talking about millions of dollars, both in pay and also in prize money. Could you say a little bit more about that? Huge way that players are compensated is through bonuses. And so at the present date, the 2023 Women's World Cup Award is set to be 60 million U.S. dollars for winning, whereas the men's 2022 World Cup Award is worth 440 million U.S. dollars, which is obviously an enormous difference for winning the same global championship. It's really hard to understand actually how much each of these individual players are making monthly or annually because all of that. And the pay structure is not the only complicating factor, right? In the paper, you say that employment status is a big issue for women soccer players around the world as well. What we found is that most players are in the amateur 
category because to be a professional player, you need to be paid regularly. And women across the world, they don't get to play regularly because of lack of championships, because of lack of interest, and for many other reasons. And with that, they don't have a secure income. They don't have access to health and other benefits. They don't have access to proper trading, and they have no stability at all. Some of them even have to pay to train, to use facilities, accepting other forms of degrading treatment. Yeah, in your paper, you cite a 2017 global survey of elite women soccer players that showed only 25% of respondents said that they were paid enough to even cover the expenses they incurred. That's correct. And you cite another eye-popping stat about the sum total of salaries for all professional women soccer players. The total number of female soccer players, which is roughly 1,400 women that are considered professional players, make the same amount that one soccer player, Neymar da Silva, the Brazilian soccer star, makes in a year. So all of the women combined get the same share that just one person makes. It's incredible. And in this lawsuit, the number that the United States women's national team players are arguing that the U.S. Soccer Federation owes them is $66 million. And that's calculated from using those complex ways that soccer players are compensated for their work individually as a team for bonuses, things like that. And in terms of the statutes that those claims implicate, these are claims under the Equal Pay Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Is that right? Yeah. So claims that there's the violation of equal pay and also gender discrimination in the sport. Exactly. Apropos of that, the U.S. Soccer Federation in this lawsuit has made some arguments defending its pay structures, some arguments that are fairly controversial. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Basically, the United States Soccer Federation was arguing this is just a different game. The men's game has different skill required, there's different effort levels required, and there's different responsibilities. And of course, there's a lot of pushback to that, including from a lot of sponsors. So just to be clear, the argument was that the men's game is harder, it takes more skill, it takes more effort, it involves more responsibility, and therefore it merits more pay? Yeah. Huh. So far as I can tell, a big difference between the men's and the women's game is that the men fall down more and they pretend to be hurt a lot more. The women just seem so much tougher. <laughs> yes, that's correct. And, and actually, during this last World Cup, you know, you could see, you know, commentators all the time comparing, again, Neymar, this Brazilian that is famous for just for rolling down on the floor. Neymar has gone down clutching an ankle here. There didn't appear to be much contact there with the opponent, I have to say. And they say, like, look, and look at these women <laughs> and tell me that it is just not a different way to live the sport. So she has to change the jersey, blood on it. It's a veteran team, Allie, just like 2015, the average age 28, several players over 30. It's very inspiring. If we promote women's inclusion in the sport, we're going to promote better practices. You know, not this deceiving kind of playing of, you know, trying to cheat, but a way in which you comply with the rules, apply yourself, and try to beat your opponent with goals. Sounds so simple. So it seems like people are saying, yeah, the sports are different. The women's sport is better. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike what the U.S. Soccer Federation is saying. Yeah. 
we see them relying more in their argument on kind of the contract-based claims that this is just a different contract. The women negotiated it, and this is what they ended up with. In your report, you explain that the contracts signed by the men's and women's teams are very different, that the men agreed to be compensated per game plus bonuses based on performance, while the women opted instead to receive a base salary. If you are outside the world of the sport, you would say, like, try to negotiate better next time. But it is just not as easy as that. It plays into conversations about women in negotiation that are cross-cutting across a lot of different fields of employment in a lot of different countries. Yeah. So where does the lawsuit stand now? It has two parts. The first one was dismissed. The part about equal pay was dismissed. The court ruled that they had actually signed a different contract. So the court accepted the argument that they made a choice. Exactly. The other part is still ongoing. This difference in what women and men are thinking about when they're negotiating women needing a salary because it's their main source of employment versus men who are being paid by clubs also speaks to how difficult the inequities and inequalities in the world of football are to fix because you have national teams, you have FIFA, you have clubs. There's a lot of different actors with power mostly situated entirely under FIFA, but there's a lot of different places where blame and responsibility and then also payment can fall, which makes uh, a silver bullet really not possible in this arena. Tobin Heath, chance for two, and she's got a goal in the WSL. But one thing that is, I think, a possible step forward is a lot of the clubs now in Europe and in the Premier League are requiring if there's a men's team, there must be a women's team as well. And so we're seeing a lot of the best women's U.S. players actually now joining clubs that you'll recognize, Manchester United, things like that. Off and running, Tobin Heath in Manchester United colours. And they have two now, and every time they come forward, they look like scoring. Now those women have a club that they're playing for. So that maybe is a glimmer of hope on the horizon. But the complex nature of who is paying these players to play, it's a real barrier. So when you're thinking about the global impact of this case and then also, you know, how advocacy is working in other countries, is litigation the most effective way of achieving equity in sports or is it the fastest way, the only way? Can you kind of situate litigation within the international human rights toolbox and kind of comparatively across the other countries where these issues are equally alive? Law and litigation play a very important role here. Not only because there are some contexts in which you can achieve certain goals by going to the courts or trying to infuse a human rights vision or approach to some of these issues, but because a lot of what is happening here is derived from a very complex and obscure justice system. Soccer, the world of soccer, is controlled by FIFA. From the top down to the smallest level of just individual players who are amateurs, kids even, FIFA is controlling the rules of the game, both literally and figuratively. And so any cases that are brought through FIFA are brought through arbitration. They cannot just go to a court like you and me. If you dare to do that, you can be suspended. No matter how important you are, no matter how successful or famous, they can end your career just right there. That's why we think that we need to look at these issues from a human rights perspective. Access to justice, equality, those are principles that are important here and they should be litigated sometimes. 
and for that courts can be important. Were the U.S. women's players risking their status by taking this claim to court? One can say that they're using a loophole in the system, which is that you can bring cases if they are related to your employer. If there is an employer-employee relationship there, and that's the claim, then you're allowed to do that. I think these arbitration requirements and all these different barriers, even understanding, where do I bring my claim? How do I access justice in this convoluted, complicated system? That's why I think we don't see as many cases as you would expect, maybe at first glance, when you look at how great these disparities are when it comes to the women's game. When you see the kind of mistreatment that's out there, not just in terms of labor, contracts, things like that, playing on different pitches, not having equal opportunity and equal access to things, but also sexual assault and harassment. That's kind of another category, but it's another huge component to discrimination in the women's game. And there's not nearly enough justice in that arena either. It's just so hard for these women players to access it. And I think by design institutionally. So both the discrimination and all of the faces that that has and the access to justice, both of these are issues and both are human rights issues. Yes. Let us not forget, most of these people are practically teenagers, right? So they don't have the knowledge of law or society to claim their rights in their own country. And now we are asking them to know this very complicated system And that's what gets exploited um, sometimes because of lack of political ability to mobilize and claim their rights. I think that's something that uh, players are learning to do these days. And that's why we find in different countries they have just said, we're going on strike. There's been sit-ins, there's been strikes. A lot of women have talked to the media. Um, One of the most prominent actions is taken by probably the best women's soccer player in the entire world. Ada Hegerberg, she's a Norwegian national team player. She also plays for a club. In a surprising move, the world's best female football player, Ada Hegerberg, who won last year's Ballon d'Or, will not be taking part in the World Cup. She refused to play for the Norwegian national team. She's been sitting out protesting inequalities within Norway, which, zooming out and looking at the entire world, is actually one of the more equal relatively speaking teams but has been protesting saying no women deserve to be treated better wir brauchen keine eier wir wir haben pferdeschwänze this is also something the media has picked up for example in germany this advertisement went out saying we don't have balls but we know how to use them wie bitte What? nice <laughs> just amplifying women players' desire to be like, hey, listen to us, pay attention. We can do this. That's quite an ad. Makes the point very effectively. Yep, <laughs> definitely. Oh, yeah. There's many players themselves now who are using social media, using their platforms to say, this is not okay, we deserve better. Hey guys, my name is Melissa Ortiz. I am Isabel Echeverri. This is a video we found on Instagram of two former soccer players from the Colombian national team. Today, we have something very important we want to talk about. We feel threatened. They don't pay us. There's no international flights. The uniforms are old. The Federation has cut off players for speaking up. And then I think there's also just the longer arc of proving that people are interested and they care about women's soccer and that it can be successful if it's invested in properly as, you know, as a men's game. I think an interesting fact to show the tides are turning on that front. Megan Rapino, who's a star of the women's U.S. national team. Her jersey is the best-selling U.S. jersey for a soccer player. 
And I think that says a lot. Um, people are interested. Here's a clip of Megan Rapino testifying in front of Congress on Equal Pay Day. There's no level of status and there's no accomplishment or power that will protect you from the clutches of inequality. One cannot simply outperform inequality or be excellent enough to escape discrimination of any kind. And I'm here today because I know firsthand that this is true. The United States women's national team has won four World Cup championships. We've won four Olympic gold medals on behalf of this great country. We've filled stadiums, we've broken viewing records, we've sold out our jerseys, all the popular metrics by which we are judged. And yet, despite all of this, we're still paid less than our male counterparts. For each trophy, of which there are many, for each win, for each tie, for each time we play, less. There is an audience for soccer. I think long-term that also is an important tool to continue to show that people care about this and there's a market. These national team players, they're at the top of the pyramid, right? They are the ones with the most clout, who can boycott, who have the most resources. But in your paper, you talk about how these inequities exist at every level of sport and they exist across lots of sports. Yeah. Step back and give us the broader picture of gender inequality in sports, right? What we've been talking about so far is a huge issue, but it's in some ways just the tip of the iceberg. Sport, like other things we consume as a society for entertainment, tells us something about ourselves and our society. And there's sexual harassment problems across the board. But there are also sports that have taken leading steps. Surfing and tennis have said, we have a problem and tried to work on it. And what's interesting, I think, with surfing was equalizing prize money. And I think one part of it that made surfing able to do that was when you have women and men competing. It's literally the same wave. And I think other sports like soccer, like hockey, like figure skating, another individual sport, those misogynistic ideas, those stereotype based claims that this isn't quite the same thing are still able to be used and kind of keep the world of sports as a whole, um, holds it back and really hanging on to some of those biases that as a society as a whole, we've been trying to break free from. So we have called this season of Common Law, Law and Equity, and we've been exploring what our different guests think the meaning of equity is and its relationship to equality. I'm curious, when you're thinking about this, are you thinking equity? Are you thinking equality? What do you think the difference is and how does it apply when you're talking about gender and sports? We want equality when it comes to playing conditions. We want women to also be playing on good grass, not turf. And we want women to also have access to training and, you know, the same level of care that the men's players get. But at the same time, there are also, I think, real flaws with the way FIFA pays and treats players. And is that necessarily something we want to emulate for women players too? Is it something that should be fixed across the board for all players? And then I think it gets even more complicated. What about pregnancy? Things like that. And so is is equality necessarily going to be the best model there? I think it's complicated. And I think that addressing these issues in sport really matters because they resonate in a lot of other parts of life as well. We've been talking with some guests about promised lands. If you're imagining the end goal, ideally, if you had the perfect system for fixing all the inequities that you see within soccer, what would it look like? 
and more participation. We found that women are excluded in all managerial levels and tiers of what FIFA is. So in the central committees, as coaches, as referees, and you know, like name it, they're excluded. The court of arbitration as well. Exactly, in the court of arbitration. So we need more participation. We need more women that could be in those places. I would love to see a community of soccer where girls stick with it. We talk a lot about the efforts of elite women, their struggles. I think I'm also thinking about the fifth graders, the sixth graders who are also facing discrimination, who also maybe get the worst times on the pitch, who get the used balls, who don't have the same amount of role models compared to the boys' teams. That's a goal. I think that will be a sign that there's been success when girls are sticking with it, just like boys, because they see the same welcome, the same opportunity, the same possibility of success that boy players have. Well, Camilo and Jolina, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being with us. No, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. That was Camilo Sanchez, the director of UVA Law's International Human Rights Clinic, along with Jolina Zabel, one of our exceptional students. Teresa, that was really interesting. And I'll say, I don't know a lot about the game of soccer, but I learned so much both about the game and also about the gender equity issues that Camilo and Jolina's work highlighted. It's been a fascinating discussion. I agree. And I only know a little bit more about soccer. That comes from my family members who are uh, players and fans. And as I mentioned before, especially my daughter. And when my daughter was in middle school, I was asked to talk to her class of girls about gender discrimination generally. And we went around the room and I asked the girls to give examples of where they saw gender discrimination. And almost every single girl cited as an example discrimination in sports. I mean, that was what was on their mind. It was so present for them. It was so glaring to them. They were so angry about it and knowledgeable about it. And so what I know really comes from my teenage daughter, who definitely thinks this is a huge equity issue and follows very closely everything that's going on in this lawsuit and everything that's going on with U.S. women's soccer. On that, it feels like a good time to do an update on the U.S. women's team's lawsuit because there have been developments on that since we recorded the episode. In April, a federal judge approved a partial settlement between U.S. soccer and the women's national team on some of their claims. They settled claims about unequal working conditions in areas like flights, hotels, venue selection, and staffing. And the settlement there clears the way for the women's team to appeal the judge's earlier ruling rejecting their claims about equal pay. So that the women's team views as kind of a core of the suit, and that now will be headed toward an appeal. One of the things that's so complicated here is just even knowing how the pay structures work, you know, and that's, I know, a big issue in the case. And there's such an opacity of information. The structures are so complicated. It's really hard to get visibility into the inequities in pay, whereas some of the other inequities are far more visible, right? The turf versus non-turf, the hotels and airlines. And I was struck 
during March Madness, after having, you know, recorded the original episode here, I was struck by the different treatment of the men's and women's team in the NCAA tournament. The weight room was where it began, but then it turned out to be in the food that was provided, in the nature of the COVID testing that was provided, right? This obviously is so endemic to the way we treat men and women in sports. And it was particularly on my mind from this episode as we watched that happen during the NCAA. It it does seem like there are some parts of this where there are point-for-point comparisons that seem really stark, and then other parts where, as you say, the the pay structures, say, in soccer seem very opaque and very difficult to get your arms around, particularly when there are different parties that are involved in different parts of it. So in in the women's team suit, it's a suit against... U.S. soccer, so it doesn't affect, for example, the World Cup bonuses that are controlled by FIFA. And in the last Men's World Cup, that bonus pool was $400 million. And in the last Women's World Cup, that was $30 million. So there are disparities. And then there are questions about who controls that, where does it come from? And that's a very complex picture. It seems like a lot of the time there's this circular reasoning that says the reason that men are compensated more highly in sports is because of the market, right? And so there not being a market justifies less investment in the sport. But it seems circular because if you invest in the sport, you can create the market. And I think certainly with Women's World Cup soccer, you have seen an enormous market that seems out of proportion with the way the compensation structure works. That's it for this episode of Common Law. If you'd like to learn more about Camilo and Jolina's work on gender equity in the beautiful game, visit our website, commonlawpodcast.com. You'll also find all of our previous episodes, links to our Twitter feed, and more. We'll be back in two weeks with former UVA law professor and current university president, Jim Ryan, to talk about what else? Equity and education. You know, our country tends to be obsessed with four-year colleges. We need to be talking much more about multiple pathways for students after high school. We're excited to share that with you. I'm Risa Galiba. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. See you next time. Do you enjoy Common Law? If so, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the show. That helps other listeners find us. Common Law is a production of the University of Virginia School of Law and is produced by Emily Richardson-Lorente and Mary Wood. Mm-hmm.